My name is Andy. I help people live life on purpose. This podcast explores the mystery, beauty, and complexity of life through conversations with an array of incredible practitioners, all of them working at the edge of what's possible for humanity. This is a place for big dreams, bold creativity, and fierce hope. Welcome to the Wonder Dome. If you're inspired by this conversation and you'd like to see it reach more people, you can help the Wonder Dome take flight by sharing it with friends and colleagues, subscribing, giving us a high star rating, and best of all, leaving a glowing review. If you'd like to go even further, consider becoming a monthly supporter. You'll help me keep the lights on and support a wide range of charitable causes. You can learn more at mindfulcreative.coach. Thanks in advance for helping us inspire the world. My guest today is Paul Dunyon. Paul is a teacher, an author, and a transformational coach who has been working for decades to help people of all ages, especially men of all ages, step more fully into their maturity, their identity, and their potential in the world. To do so in a way that engages with the shadow sides of our life, the parts of ourselves that we don't want people to see, that our parents or our communities or our culture have told us are not, are not welcome. And um, the work of bringing that into the light in a way that allows us to integrate, to heal, to become more fully who we are. In addition to that, Paul writes and speaks beautifully about the nature of life and the nature of reality, about the ways in which so much of our experience, what happens to us, what, what the world brings to us is outside the scope of our control and, and the work of humbling ourselves to that truth that we're not here to, uh, we're not here to get life right. As Paul says, we're not here to get life right. But if we're lucky, if we're willing, if we're open life, if we let it, life might get us right. We're not here to get life right, but if we let it, life might get us right. That idea sits at the heart of the book, one of his six books that I've read called Wisdom, which is a really wonderful exploration of these questions of what it means to become wise and serves as the backbone for our conversation. He's also written five or six other books, including a book on aging called My Days with Emma, A Soulful Path to Elderhood, which won the Literary Titan Book Award, um, the Gold Award, which is awarded to books that Literary Titan finds to be perfect in their delivery of, of original content, utilizing fresh themes, themes to convey innovative ideas, and deftly using elegant prose to transform words into expertly written literature. So Paul really is a wordsmith. He's also a heart and soul smith. And our conversation today explores these patterns of maturity and masculinity and shadow work and the state of the field in this moment and, and what it means for us to, to allow ourselves to be blessed by life and to be a blessing in life. So let's settle in. Ah. and hear what Paul has for us. 
All right. We're just going to start fresh because we only got about 30 seconds into the first round before we got knocked out here. Um, glad right. you have a generator there on backup. Power lines are down where you are. Winds are blowing high. So we'll see if we, we'll see how we go, but we're back again. Welcome back to the Wonder Dome, Paul. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. It's good to have you back. So you made a really uh, beautiful invitation kind of before we started recording. And I asked you, you know, what would, what would make this a good conversation for you? And, you know, you just said whatever is emerging for each of us as two men together, like what's just right on that threshold, what's right on that edge. And I was just really touched by that, your willingness to enter into this space with a pretty much a stranger and go, I'm here for whatever's here. So one, uh, maybe I'll name one thing that's here for me and either either yeah. that will land with you and we can roll with it or you name what's here for you and we'll see what's in between. Does that sound good? Okay. Yeah, that's okay. good. Cool. I, I'm I'm sitting with like in the in the interim when you were reconnecting, I was like, oh, yeah, what is here for me? And I was like, well, hopefully one thing, hopefully Paul comes back, you know, if not, we'll have to figure out the logistics. But you came back and and I'm just really sitting with this question of there's a lot of noise out there around masculinity, masculine energy, masculine identity doing men's work and um, men is the source of, of all that ails us. And like, there's a lot of parts of me that co-sign with that, that are really interested in that. And that also feel a bit, there are other parts of me that feel resistant to that, that feel like it's all a bit of psychodrama. And maybe there's, maybe what we just really need to do is just like work some, work some shit out and then get to it. And and I and I as I say that out loud, I notice that in a way that other voice is has to me a very masculine energy to it. Like stop, stop with all the emotional work and like get to it. So yeah. that's what I'm just I'm coming in with that inquiry, and I know that you've been walking this path in a, in a lot of ways. So I'm curious to hear how that lands with for, with you or what that brings up for you. It it brings up uh, like cornerstones of both my personal work and my professional work. Uh, one of them being, in 1978, Herb Goldberg wrote a book called The Hazards of Being Male. Mm. And it started changing my life. I think at the time I must have been 28 or 29. Yeah. And um, I think that combined with, I had a father who delighted in the company of men. Mm. Yeah. I mean, he would gather with men in the home he would tell stories, and inevitably he would tell stories of the gifts that each man possessed and how he saw them serving uh, humanity. Yeah. Uh, wow. Unfortunately, I'm not sure he was clear about his own gifts, but he certainly knew <laughs> how, he certainly knew how to blow the trumpet in the name of other men's gifts. Hmm. Hmm. So that was probably the best modeling uh, he offered me, uh, his delight wow. in the company of men. Yeah. That so, there's uh, there's something that strikes me as somewhat rare about that. That that there's a there's I'll, maybe I'll speak from my own experience. Mm -hmm. uh, I too have reached a place in my life. I'm actually, as I mentioned to you, going to go into my men's group right after this recording. So I've reached a place in my life where I do take a lot of delight being around my dudes, and I wasn't always that way. There was a lot more kind of um, just just armoring up. 
I guess, just kind of a sense of like, this might be dangerous, me being with this group of guys. So I better, I better armor up and, and maybe not be quite so emotive, maybe not be quite so sensitive, maybe not be quite so, you know, open. And, uh, to hear, and to hear your dad kind of like way back then and whatever that was, 50s, 60s, 70s kind of showing up in that way is pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, he and I had our problems along the way. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> but his his offering was me witnessing his delight in the company of men for sure. Mm. Mm. And then when when I read Herb Goldberg's book, it was like, wait a minute, now I'm really curious about what's going on with men. And I had a mentor at the time, and he wanted me to go to North Andover, Mass, where there was a renegade Jesuit by the name of Michael Merrill. And he was doing something that nobody, I think, was doing in North America. He was running five-day-long shadow retreats for men. Um, right. And so my mentor was kicking my butt. He says, you, you, this is 1979. He said, you got to get up there and hang out with this guy. How, how old were you thereabouts in 79? 28 or so. 28? Oh, yeah. You, yeah, okay. Yeah. So I went up and, and did the retreat. Uh, with this guy, and he he was at a cutting edge, uh, introducing men to if we're going to mo- lean into wholeness, and if we're going to be of any service, we got to get damn clear about our shadow material. Mm. Mm. And it was very powerful. And it, I mean, it, it woke me up to oh my god, there is a path here that I might be called to. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Did you have any resistance kind of or worry or trepidation going into that or or yeah, this, was... you know the same I've never at that point anything I did with men was playing sports or you know playing cards but there was no serious gathering really at that point in my life at 28 and 29 and this was going to be pretty serious you couldn't even use your your real name you had to come and name your shadow and live by that name for the week I mean it it was he was at a cutting edge, this guy, for, for for sure. So let's maybe let's hang out with that. Like uh, in whatever way you're comfortable sharing, maybe yeah. like what was your shadow's name or how did you even know what name to give it? Because sort of part I of gave, the... I, yeah. As I recall, I gave it a Native American name of some kind. And I think, I think it represented for me at the time something more instinctual, something mm. more primal that I'm often not aware of. Mm. I think that's that's how it went, but you know we're going back more more than forty years. Yeah. <laughs> Fair yeah. enough. Fair enough. But it was good enough that I went back the next year. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What yeah. was good enough about it? Like to to the extent you remember, what was it about this this ability to I, to you know? Well, back home, my mentor was really into shadow material. For example, there was a, I'll never forget this. There was a Monday evening. Uh, CBS did a two-hour movie on the Holocaust. Hmm. So I'm watching it, and it's not an easy thing to watch, right? No. So about an hour in at a commercial, the phone rang, and it was this mentor of mine. Are you watching the movie, he said. I said, I am. It's kind of tough. He said, yeah, tough for me, too. I am struggling to find the Nazi within. That's how devoted this guy was. It's a hell of a thing to see. Yeah. Uh, and he's pointing me in those directions constantly. You know, I'm a little squirmy, like, can't, 
can't we do something a little lighter and make me maybe make me look a little better? Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. It's not who this guy was. And so anytime there was an opportunity to lean in that direction, I, for the next six years, he mentored me with tremendous devotion. But that influence was constant. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So even today in, you know, 2023, I noticed parts of me, I'm trying, you know, find the Nazi within, right? Like they're out of, taken out of context, especially that, that invitation or that push. I mean, I, I can know, I notice parts of me having an almost allergic reaction to that. Like, what do you mean? I'm known, like, I'm, I can never do that. What do you, what are you even talking about? You're messed up. That's, that's awful. Nazis are awful. And like, yeah, all of that's true. And there's something right. powerful about owning the truth that well, it's in so, some yeah, context that could have been us. Well, it's also own, not could it have been, but how about my current expression of insensitivity, sadism, mm. negligence? Yeah, that's real. Mm. Yeah, mm. I mean, I could stand at the stop and shop, six six people in you know in line, and I'm running at times some cursing. Like, who the hell let that guy? Who the hell let that guy in? He's not even paying quick enough, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah. it doesn't take much. I've got mm. this new policy now. The minute the cursing starts, I, I take a breath and I stop blessing everybody that's in front of me. <laughs> 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 just, I, just because I don't want that toxic energy in my being. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. But what it, from where you sit, either having now been doing this work for decades or kind of reconnecting to your mentor pushing you. Yeah. When most of us would rather either avoid that truth or like uh, try and say that there's no, no, I'm not, I don't have any sadistic, I don't judge people. No, like whatever the resistance is there, what's important about not resisting that, about meeting that, that truth that it lives in us? I think the greatest gift is the shadow, shadow material will definitely get expressed by projection. I see George's insensitivity, no problem. Really? Uh-huh. So, for example, I have great trust these days when I move into disgust. If I see something and I'm disgusted by it, an alarm goes off in my head going, you might want to check that out for projection. Mm. And sure enough, almost always, I'm projecting shadow material onto someone else. Mm. Mm. This feels really uh, concrete and important. Maybe... Maybe you could take us a little more into this. When you say uh, check it out, what do you, how are you checking that out? What are you checking Here's for? Here's an example. A friend of the family's uh, got into a relationship that was a little bit unusual. I won't get into the particulars, but it was not indicative to any norm of having a relationship. So my wife said to me, how are you feeling about this when you see when you witness this? I said, I don't know. Give me a moment. She said, well, I think uh, I think this person has a desperate need to be loved. And then I went into disgust. And then I went into who else might have a desperate need <laughs> to be loved? <laughs> sure mm. enough, it was me. Mm. That's an example mm. of, mm. yeah, that disgust points me back to me in a heartbeat. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And and as you encounter that in you, yeah. there's sort of, or maybe as any of us encounter that in ourselves, there sort of seems to be only a few options. Either we kind of 
are disgusted by our own like, oh, it's in me too. Uh, and we try and push, repress, repel, deny, or right. we accept and get curious. Like, or, or, or I don't know. Yeah. Like what's the move towards? What, helps, what helps me is to start talking to my support system about what I'm experiencing. I need to make it a little bit more real. Like, how do I get my hands around this thing? I mean, I have, I have, and here I am, 75 years old, and I've never paused to do, I have a desperate need to be loved. Well, it's it's new material. And I was doing pretty good with it, right? But what the person that I projected it on, my wife says to me, well, you know, she's telling other people about the relationship, and they're all applauding her. So then I went to, wait a minute, publicing my desperate need to be loved? Hold on a second. I can own it, but I got to own it in the back room. Mm. And I was at a whole new level of ownership, banging on the door. Mm. Mm. And from that level of ownership, what becomes possible or in, in you, in the world, in relationships? What? Why own it? What's important about owning it? Two, just two important reasons for me. Every time I own it, the notion of wholeness loses a lot of its ambiguity and abstract nature, meaning I'm leaning into wholeness. Mm. Mm. And number two, I can hopefully grab some small measure of compassion for the person I was willing to just stay disgusted about. Mm -hmm. So those two things, a greater relationship with myself and the potential of having more relatedness to the other. Mm. 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 And you know, every time I try to get squirmy, you know, I'm not a (laughs) Jungian, but God, I love Jung. And his big, you know, one of the things he said about light, if you want to become conscious, that's the wrong place to look, he said. Mm. You've got to look into the darkness. Mm -hmm. The whole shadow thing was, you know, it was his perspective. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So from Maybe you could unpack how this intersects really clearly, because in a way, you're talking from your first person experience and what you're saying, I sense could be true for any human being who experiences a sort of looks at someone else and feels something kind of, quote unquote, negative or nasty or repulsive about them that anyone could do shadow work. How does this intersect with Matt with men? masculine identity with masculinity the the shadow of masculine work what's what's unpack that a bit all right before i unpack that i would say this that when shadow work's not happening there's a lot of raw material generating divisiveness and right now as we all know there's like more divisiveness probably than we've ever seen and my hunch is it's because projections are roaring mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. not you know there's not much shadow work going on um, in, in relationship to men's work, to a great degree, it's about, for sure, calling off competition. I mean, competition in some, on some level, and I like competition, but when it's unconscious and it's just roaring freely, it has a tendency to lean into hierarchy, mm-hmm. into windows, right? Mm-hmm. And doing shadow work can help me pull the plug on unnecessary competition or unnecessary comparing and contrasting myself to other men where I'm going to put somebody up or I'm going to put somebody down. 
that can be incredibly helpful. Yeah. Like in the in the early days of the mythopoetic men's movement and our gatherings, it was a norm. You don't mention what you do professionally when you're attending the weekend. And it was great to have a neurologist sitting by a plumber and they would have a wonderful exchange because the typical hierarchical bullshit was eliminated. Mm, mm, mm. To a great degree. Yeah. A part of me starts to spin out like, and I don't know if this is fertile ground for our conversation, but I'll just name, you know, I, I have a pretty, uh, amb- no, it's not even ambivalent. Like I just, I generally don't like hierarchies of domination of, of like, I'm better than you because I'm in this position that really irks me. And my sort of my, my typical default response that I've developed over, you know, 40 some odd years of life is, I think I have a much healthier relationship to it. Now I can work in hierarchical systems with more fluidity, but mostly I just don't want to be there if I don't have to be there. It's just kind of like, I'm just going to exit. But as I, as I like tune into that, well, well, exiting doesn't really at at best it serves me at best. And maybe it doesn't even serve me. And I wonder like, yeah, I wonder if you could just talk about like, we live in this really hierarchical society. It would be great if we could all just say, hey, everyone, like, stop with the bullshit. But we can't, like, that doesn't seem to be working. So what's your relationship to this kind of like the macro hierarchies that we live in? How do you move through that? What do you, uh, what do you how do you relate to that? Well, first, I, I think hierarchies, I've come to believe hierarchies natural. Meaning, once a group decides that somebody's got a gift that will benefit others there's a way in which that person kind of slides to the top um i think the difference colleagues of mine out in boulder did a nice shift of paradigm with this they said in hierarchy the guy with the gift slides to the top that makes sense right i mean because people are cherishing wanting that gift to be somehow dispersed and used but typically what the person does there is indulge in ent- more entitlement and privilege. Yeah, yeah. So my colleagues out in Boulder, they shifted it to, let's move from hierarchy to holding rank. Hmm. Hold- yeah, holding rank means, okay, in this setting, I'm the guy with the gifts. You're telling me, I know it, you know it. And now the real issue is, how do I best serve? Mm-hmm. Not how do I get more privilege and entitlement, <laughs> But how do I best serve? Yeah, I like that phrase, holding rank. Like, oh, I, I'm, oh, I have to hold this. This is a responsibility I've now taken on. That's right. But gosh, it's so it's so dang seductive to like get to the position of you. You slide your way in there, and then you start believing the hype, and then you start maybe yep. that's then that's makes projection worry even more because you look at everyone else who's not at the top and you're kind of disgusted by them because uh, you don't want to not be the person who's not at the it's top. And it's just like yeah. you're right it's incredibly seductive yeah if i wrote a piece called the sacred and the seductive seductive where i talk about the three amigos power greed and vanity mm. and that hierarchy those three amigos start roaring they get highly activated yeah. I, I'm a part of me is worried I'm going to start like asking you to sort of 
diagnose and solve what ails our whole society. So like, you know, stop me if I'm kind of, if I'm kind of pushing too, too far in that direction, but I'm just aware, like, not only is it seductive, but part of what's seductive is that, is that it has a sort of self re there's a self reinforcing quality to it. Sure. You know, so you get more, you, for people who get seduced by that, they just keep wanting more and more. And so the sort of shadow of that is like, it's never ending. You just, you see people who all they care about is more and more power, but the power yeah. to is to a great extent can be enforced pretty violently and pretty brutally. Like, there is a point at which someone who has made their way to that place in the hierarchy, you know, there will be people who don't want them there who are trying really effing hard to get them out of there and might even be willing to kill them to get them out of there. But on the same token, there will be a lot of people who are willing to kill to keep them there. Like it's that's really that's there's a lot of intensity there. What do you make of that? Lot. Yeah, my uh, my colleague, James Hollis, he calls, he says, it's the ego's attachment to maintaining its sovereignty. Mm-hmm. Mm. and it, the ego loves to do that to maintain its sovereignty and you know i of course i'm interested in how to support and help others with this but i mostly want to save my own butt <laughs> yeah i want to pay attention to what's the current status of seduction in my life mm. like i was telling a colleague uh, a couple of months ago the first 35 years of my life in private practice I was in my basement seeing individuals five or six hours a day. There wasn't a heck of a lot of seduction. Then I started working for an organization that's putting me into the world and all kinds of wonderful things can start happening, right? Uh, and But it was, it was like, if my elderhood's gonna mature, I don't think I can do it in the damn basement. <laughs> I'm going to, have to get into the world and notice what's happening. Notice what's being given to me. Is there respect coming? Is there admiration coming? What's the what's the level of the seduction I need to do? Mm. That's, that's critical for me. Mm. But I tell you, a wonderful gift I received three or four weeks ago. I was working with this leader, and he read the article, "The uh, Sacred and the Seductive." Oh, and nice. He's in the running to become a CEO, right? And he said to me in our session, I think I'd like it, but I know the amigos will be there waiting for me. <laughs> I, was, I was so touched. Mm. I said, you're right. Mm. Vanity and power will be waiting for you. Mm. Mm -hmm. The key is going to be how conscious do you want to be about that and start learning how to own it and then release it. Mm. Mm. It's a very touching moment for me. That's really cool. Yeah, maybe this is a this strikes me as an opportunity to to step a bit more fully into the primary work that I've experienced with you, which is your book on wisdom and um, seduction. We're talking about power and this is how seductive it is, and we've also talked about shadow and projection and and those themes at least in my reading, show up really, really clearly in this book that, and when you said, and I just got to save my own butt, like that in a way felt like a why that struck me as like, oh yeah, there's wisdom. If everyone could just, if we all just accepted that our job was to sort of quote unquote, save our own butt <laughs> and in the context of knowing ourselves more clearly, leaning into wholeness, 
releasing what's seducing us so that we're not hurting others, boy, we'd yes. be in a quite a different spot. Yes, I think we would. I think you're right. Yeah. Hmm. So one of the quotes from this book that I love, and you talk a lot about, you use the word fate a lot. So maybe we can unpack what you mean when you say fate, because that's a very uh, kind of mythological yeah, I'm using, word. I'm using an ancient definition, which is will of the gods. And so that manifests in my life by people, places, and things that are happening to me. Some of them, very, very few of them in my control, and a lot of them not. <laughs> Yeah, yeah the, the sort of the thrust of the book is most of what life brings you will not be controllable for you. You will Life will no. bring it to you. No, at 30 years old, I thought it was almost all going to be in my control. <laughs> 70, at 75 years old, I'm willing to say 97% won't be in my control. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And there's this really beautiful quote, which maybe is another way of saying, you know, saving our own butts is, is, is accepting you can't get life right. Can't get no. life right. And if you allow, life might get you right. Yeah. Can you say more uh, about that? Yeah, allowing, I think, it really gets back to the subtitle of the book. Apprenticing to the unknown. And to a great degree, that's my definition of a mystic. Mm. He, or, he or she willing to apprentice to the unknown. And then the second part of the uh, subtitle is uh, uh, befriending fate. Yeah. It's really, I wish it was, I wish it was my creativity, but it really was Nietzsche who said, uh, amor fati, love mm. fate. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So, so talk a bit more about um, maybe, maybe we can work with each of those parts of the subtitle. Like this idea of apprenticing to the unknown is really evocative and there's something a bit uh, unknowable, a bit cryptic about it. Like, what does that mean? You know, so so say more about what you mean by it, this apprenticeship. I mean, mostly what I mean is the stuff that really matters in life, like what I think really matters. Love, wisdom, courage, compassion, generosity, gratitude, um, authenticity. There there's no final inquiry and conclusion with these things. Mm, mm. The best I can do is to remain mm. an apprentice. I notice in some of my work at times now, um, I can be referred to as an expert. And I'm, I cringe, cringe. I said, you know, let's, I like to eliminate the E word. I know people are trying to be kind, and but I, I, my, I need to remain in the apprenticeship with everything I've got. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Otherwise, otherwise, I'm playing games. Mm. I think uh, I'm trying to think of who it was. It was an author, the guy who lived down in Key West. What was that guy's name? You remember, famous author? No, I got nothing. He said, he... This, he said this is a journey that nobody gets right ultimately. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's something liberating about that. For, for as I just sort of really hear you speak that, you know, and I can hear in your voice, at least I'm maybe I'm projecting, but I can hear for me, what I'm hearing in your voice is a kind of like, really hear this. You can't yeah, get I this mean, right. You can't, you just can't get yeah, it right. It's really important to me because in my work with younger men, 
one of the shifts that I really, really work hard with with them is they'll they'll tell me about a scenario that they're struggling with, right? And I'll say, now it sounds to me like you think this situation is mostly about you. And the guy will say, well, it is. It's my girlfriend or my boss, right? I said, well, I got bad news. <laughs> Not mostly about you. It's mostly about life. Life has brought this to you. But it's you're you're more of a minor character. In the story. <laughs> right? Yeah. And I and I here I am being a student of this at the same time, obviously. It's not like I got it down. But when I see a young man starting to go, wait a minute, maybe this isn't mostly about me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now mm-hmm. it's what life's presenting. The only parts about me is how am I responding? Mm. All, the, all, the, all the nuances and variables I didn't create. Yeah. yeah. And when you start to push on that, what are how does what are some of the ways that unfolds as the as the young men you work with start to reckon well, with that some, invitation? I think as you pointed out, some guys start feeling some relief. Mm. It's like, like, wait a minute, this isn't all about me. And I think some some other times there's a response of a greater need to assert the ego of, oh, this has got to be, you know, a man, so many men want to be more heroic. Yeah. And if they acknowledge that it's mostly about life, it's tough to be more heroic. <laughs> yeah, I can, I'm aware of both in me. Like there is some relief and there is also a little bit like, yeah, but like, I mean, I'm doing some pretty cool stuff, Paul. Like, Life's got to appreciate that, right? Like, there's a little bit of that, like, that uh, resistance to, like, really leaning into that invitation. If you, if you, how would, like, maybe if we were working on that a bit, how would we work on that a bit? I mean, first, let me say, it happens to me, too. I mean, again, my ego enjoys its sovereignty. Yeah. (laughs) So the idea this story is about life and not me, I can hear the ego protest, too. Absolutely. Um, what helps me when, and oftentimes I need help is to focus more on service. Mm-hmm. Like where am I being called to serve and what does the serve service look like? And who is it that wants the service? The more I lean there, it's almost like I'm, I, I can mitigate the attachment to the ego sovereignty a little bit. Huh? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because when when i need that ego sovereignty i'm more into proving demonstrating and showing how nifty i am yes, yes. but in service if it's authentic it can be mitigated to some degree yeah and uh, the same mentor who said did you did you i can't find hitler the nazi in me he told me a story once about service that I stay very, very close to as much as possible. He was an Anglican priest years ago, and he he ran also a bookstore in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. And one very cold winter night, a young man came in and said, are you a priest? And he said, yes, why? He's my mother's dying. Hmm. You come. And he goes, yeah, I'll come. And my mentor at the time had just finished a very sophisticated training from Elizabeth Kubler-Ross on death mm-hmm. and dying. Mm-hmm. So he's eager to get up there and help, right? He gets up there, he walks in the house, 
This elderly woman's in bed. He kneels down beside her and says, tell me, how can I help you? And she said, cup of soup. <laughs> mm. Yes, yeah. Mm. That story reminds me to get my ego, if I can, to the background when service is the issue. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because mm -hmm. it might be a cup of soup. Mm -hmm. It's a beautiful story. It also makes me think of your your own just example of being in the checkout line, right? Like there's a way in which everything in this store is here to serve me because I'm here getting my groceries. Everyone hurry the heck up. Yeah. But there's another stance to say like, wow, like everyone in here is is working with whatever they're working with. And look at all of us in this line. Look at the person behind the the register, like just trying to get through and keep a smile on like, all right. I'll do my best to just bless everyone here, myself included. Yeah, I like that. Mm. Because this colleague of mine says, anytime he meets someone, he, he immediately goes, this person has gone through a great deal. Mm. Mm. He doesn't know them at all, right? Mm. This person has gone through a great deal. Mm. The same can be said in the checkout line to all the, all the people lined up. Yeah, These people have gone through a great deal. Yeah. 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 And I, 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 you know, have sort of an image forming in my head of your mentor, you know, this books, bookstore owner who's also a, an Anglican priest who's just done all this training around walking beside people as they, as they, you know, pass into death. And, you know, that kind of like robustness of that identity kind of walking into a room and yeah. the old woman says, I need some soup. And to kind of go, yeah, I can make, I can go make soup. Yeah. All right. I might, I might, do I know how to make soup? You know, like, like, I guess I got to figure out how to get some soup going here. You know, there's something really humbling about that. Well, there's just a nice shift from the glory of my gifts and how they're going to benefit to what the hell is the real need in front of me. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. That's not an easy shift all the time. Mm -mm. No. Mm. One of the, uh, since we're on this topic of death, you, you know, you, in the book, it's it's something you address in the book Wisdom here. Mm -hmm. um, you actually use the phrase death class, like, we cannot serve life well without learning how to die. Mm -hmm. And uh, I feel that feels like a, that feels really provocative to me. That feels like an emerging edge as you presence the old woman passing. And I wonder... Yeah, maybe, maybe you could just start to say more about that if that feels rich for you. Well, it's certainly closer to me at 75 years old. I mean, you know, most of my life's behind me now. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's like there's a kinship with death developing for me. Hmm. <clears throat> but in the t context of the book, what I'm referring to mostly is if I can truly accept that life is fundamentally about non-permanence and fundamentally about change. You know, and because we're in a death-denying culture, we don't like using language like death, right? And yet in change, if I understand change correctly, something's always dying and something's always birthing. Mm -hmm. But we don't, we don't talk that way. Mm -hmm. And so mostly what I'm saying about if I'm going to embrace life, I need to embrace the part that's both. There's two parts going on all the time in change. 
something's birthing and something's dying. Mm -hmm. That's mostly what I'm talking about. And that might be our actual, like, our life coming to an end, but also at like at, at this moment right now in this conversation, something's boring and birthing and something's, something's going to end. Something else will begin. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. So I don't think it's easy to create a, uh, an open receptive relationship with non-permanence. I think it takes practice. It's yeah. like practice for me anyway. Yeah. And that's one way I like to practice. Mm. So I'm a, I'm a father of, um, I'm a father of young children and, and, uh, I have a five, almost five-year-old daughter and, uh, almost three-year-old son and a six-month-old infant. So we're sort of, we're in, we're in quite a place of, of, of birthing in our family. Like there's a lot coming online and it can feel like, whew, can feel really overwhelming because I've also had to, let go of a lot of things that I assume to be true about, about how I spend my time and what I'm about. And, and yeah, at my best, I feel like I have access to the servant stance on behalf of my children's becoming and, and sort of at, on an average day, like I run through the whole gamut of emotions around like, you know, like, Oh yeah, why did you do that? Give me some space. Come on, get it together. You know, there's all of this just like, it's so, so frothy with, emotion and and feeling and all of it um but there's this the reason i think i'm getting in touch with this is there's a moment when i was taking a shower which is in theory one of the few private moments in the house in the household but with kids not true like they're just running in and where's dad oh he's in the shower and and then and so i'm in the shower the glass door and and this to by myself for the time being and suddenly my daughter who again is almost five just runs in looks at me in the shower, huge smile on her face, waves and runs out. <laughs> and it was just like, so sweet. It made me laugh. And then after I was finished laughing, I got like struck with, and this really moved me and, and touched me. That, that little micro interaction is the story of my whole relationship to her. She has arrived into my life. We greet, we meet, and then she goes. Right. And I just, it was a very humbling, kind of sad, bittersweet recognition that in, in just a, no time, I'll, she'll be 18, 25, 32, 42. And at some point, I'll, you know, if, if things, you know, go as they statistically tend to do, then I will die and she'll still be here. And maybe, maybe also that might not happen. I could lose her, you know, she could die before I do. And all of that, just like in that one sweet moment, I kind of like touched that for a minute. And it was so important for me to own that and also really sad and scary for me to own that. Yeah, yeah. No, I hear that so much lately. Maybe it's because I'm older now, but I don't think of life so much anymore as the journey, which I've often referred to it as the journey. Now more, I refer to it similar to what you just said. That is a series of snapshots, images that touch me on some level and call me somewhere that's fuller. Hmm. Fullness may be joy, but also may be fear. It may be upset in some way. Uh, but I think it's those images, those snapshots hmm. that are yeah. critical. Yeah. That's what I understand is being alive now. Yeah. 
yeah, maybe as you just mirror that back, that really lands with me. But what I'm in touch with is like, without that moment and, and without the gift of that moment, uh, it's what, what I want to say here. Like that moment has become an anchor for me. It has become a touchstone for me. And the, the felt sense of the memory and its aliveness in me, even as it points to the fleeting nature of things yeah. is much more powerful anchor in my relationship to her than the, like, you know, like whatever yeah. it is. she decides she wants to play with, with the, everything in the fridge and dumps it on the floor. And I'm like, Oh, sweet Christmas. I got to clean this up now. You little punk. Like what the, it's like that, that moment, if I anchor it in the wave and the hello, I'm like, look at you, you little goober spilling milk all over the floor. Like this is hysterical. And I'm like, come on, help me clean this up. And it just is, there's a totally different like appreciation for even the quote unquote frustrating yeah. moments. And I like, I like what you're saying. Cause you're taking the intensity out of the annoyances. Yeah. And if I don't take the intensity out, the damn things dominate my perspective, <laughs> they dominate how I see things, how I feel things. Yeah. yeah, and it's a, and it just it just kind of a, like that dominance, that intensity, just keeps getting in the way of the the wholeness and the fullness that uh, that you you have gestured to several times in this conversation. Yep, it does. It derails it. Hmm. Hmm. I mean, it derails it so much that whether I'm fathering or spousing or being a friend. It can actually put me in a position of feeling like a victim. Yeah. Look what yeah. you're doing to me. Look what you do. Why are you doing exactly? Yeah. Why are you why, doing this to me? Do that. To why me? are you doing this to me? Yes. And I just had that instant last, like just last night, there was an accident right before bed. And I was like, oh, I got to deal with this. I was just about to put your brother to, ah, oh. and she's like, oh, I'm sorry. And I'd like, and I was like, all right, let me work this. And then like, you know, there's some repair work to do because I made her feel bad about it. And then it's like, yeah, that just like, that wasn't, that wasn't worth me going down that hole. Why? She didn't do anything to me. She just had an accident. Like, get over yourself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I'm remembering, you know, in my late 20s, I was really into uh, taking parenting classes. And then I actually taught parenting classes. You later. did? Yeah. Uh, yeah, in fact, I taught uh, step uh, foster parents for the state of Connecticut. But mm. one of the things I started being aware of is I don't really have to say something to shame my children. I can just make a hell of a lot of faces. Toxic faces will do it. Mm -hmm. It was a tremendous awareness to say, mm -hmm. wait a minute. Mm. If I don't take my intensity out of the dynamic, I've got a host of toxic faces they're going to shame the hell out of this kid. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And they're like tracking so, they're so tuned in. So every little nuance is, it's hard to, that level, that, I mean, that's a kind of almost, almost mystical level of attention to a certain object, right? Like that is hard for us as adults to realize the power of it. Absolutely. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Let me check the time. This is really, if nothing else, I'll leave here feeling a little more uh, connected to like what is parenting, <laughs> parenting about. But I think I want to. I think I want to tune into the like. There's this apprentice aspect of your journey towards wisdom. Like, there's so much we don't know, so much beyond our control, and there's also befriending. 
like that apprenticing is one thing like i'm willing to learn from this but befriending evokes to me a an even deeper intimacy with life yeah yeah in fact a a book that i i'm starting to write is a lot about what it means to live intimately Mm. and right it evokes a greater degree of intimacy it's and again it's also an anti-victim posture that i think is critical and something the Jungians say that I was never crazy about, but I'm starting to like it. <laughs> and that is the one most single most prerequisite for the path of wisdom is the archetype of the fool. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. yeah. What are you starting to like about that? What I like about it is there's, there's, there's no expert in that paradigm. It's the apprenticeship guarantees I'm going to be foolish somehow. I'm I'm stepping into the unknown. Mm-hmm. And if I step into the unknown, I like, uh, again, James Hollis says there are four expressions of mystery. Me, you, nature, and God. Four expressions of mystery. Get used to it. You're going to be an apprentice. You're never going to totally penetrate the mystery of Either, any one of those four. Mm-hmm. And it is a way in which it does guarantee my foolishness is going to surface. So it's a lot about how do I carry that? How do I carry the inevitability of being a fool? Mm-hmm. I think it's a critical question. Mm-hmm. Boy, you know, you said earlier that this is a uh, we live in a death-denying culture, and, and that really landed with me. But I also it just strikes me that we live in a, like, fool shaming or fool denying culture that that like to be foolish is one of the most egregious things you can do absolutely in fact when i when you saw me at the npi there was an afternoon i had the men pair up and take a walk and they were asked to only tell fool stories about themselves (laughs) and it was when they came back and they were sharing them we were in hysteria so much joy in the room because what the, what the full stories do is they they confirm everybody's humanity mm-hmm. hierarchy shot the hell in those moments yeah. <laughs> yeah there's no hope there's no hope for hierarchy yes well yeah. and, and 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 to the extent i understand the archetype of the fool like part of like the court jester for instance is the like one permissible role in the whole court that can go make fun of the king like it's it is in That's a way right. that the outlet to vent to realize like hey this whole thing you know we all kind of just made this up right you know this is all a little bit of like we're all kind of like role live action role playing you all know that right and the fool can can say that and be cool with it yeah his job is to mitigate the king's arrogance hmm mm-hmm <laughs> I just, I got this whole, like, there's a whole thread of, like, there's a whole nother podcast out there for someone who wants to make it around, like, let's just all just come together and tell our full stories. I don't know a greater welcome to humanity. Mm. Mm. A guy asked, you know, because I often get connected to the Connecticut's men's gathering. We have, like, 100 men come twice a year to a retreat. And a guy asked me, well, when you give a talk to 100 men, how how do you start that? I said, I tell them a full story. Oh, nice. No, I want to welcome their humanity before we do anything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. 
Mm. <laughs> and, and I I can flash back. My father was good at that. Yeah, he he would tell full stories, and his brothers were good at it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My uncle is good at that, although he's as I said that I realized he's generally pretty good at telling other other people's full stories. <laughs> people's full stories. <laughs> yeah, 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 actually. Yeah, yeah which are very funny, but maybe maybe don't always quite presence his own humanity. <laughs> right. yeah, 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 I mean, I'm getting in touch. There's like, and I, like I can think of a couple that are starting to come in and and just just even the permission you're embodying around like, this is your humanity, right? Like a, a, in the moment, I remember feeling some real shame and embarrassment, like really pretty intense actually that I had, done this stupid thing like i was asked in college to sort of host this like kind of uh event at the student center and i mean we don't have time for me to tell the whole full story but like long story short is i just like really fell flat like my jokes weren't funny uh i kept like saying people's names wrong i kept like forgetting that this was supposed to happen next and it was just like i was just a shambles you know and i really like I, i'm so sur- honestly surprised i stayed on the stage for the whole thing but like I could feel the collective, like, oh, Andy, no, oh, no. And I still like just just now to like, oh yeah, that was so foolish. And it doesn't have as much charge now that I can just say it without knowing that, like, hey, of course, you have a full story That's too. That's right. You know what I'm flashing back when you say that? In 1992, I started a mentoring community for 14-year-old boys. And we had 12 mentors. We met with the boys every Tuesday evening. And uh, the school was getting good reports around the boys were into it. They liked it. So the social worker at the school stopped me and she said, the hell are you guys doing with them? And I said, believe it or not, we tell them full stories about ourselves. Uh... And they listen. It was unbelievable. It was magic. Yeah. Yeah. Because so much of... uh education particularly for like quote-unquote problem students right so much of it is like here's all of the things that are wrong with you yep get in line we're gonna punish you if you don't you're gonna you know this so come on and to like meet yep. an adult who says i am such a goon you wouldn't believe what i did yep that's powerful yeah mm. Mm. oh paul this is um you know, we're approaching our time in a way. I feel like we've arrived at this wonderful invitation. Anyone who's listening to just take a moment and notice when you felt the fool, and notice how that might have provoked shame or or embarrassment, mm. and and maybe realize that like every single person who is hearing this has a fool story. Every single Absolutely. one of us. And yeah. the image I have when you say that is a Thanksgiving dinner with the family, and everybody tells one. <laughs> Oh, I love it. Yes. Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but you got to tell your own. That's the key. Yeah. That's the key. Yeah. You can't be the uncle who tells everyone else's full story no. for them. No, you got to tell your own. I tell your own. Yeah, I might, you know what I might do? I might, I'm like, I might just ask my uncle and be like, hey, when's the time when you really fell flat on your face? You willing to share that? Yeah, great. I think question. he might. I think he might. We'll, we'll see. We'll see how I'll, I'll report back. All right. <laughs> I'll tell mine first, too. I'll tell mine first to him and then I'll say, hey, like, because, oh, you know, I realize, like, in a way, 
and he is a big male figure in my life. He's he's um, a very smart, talented guy who's accomplished a lot and yeah. and and sort of I think has parts of him that love to be the life of the party and hold court and make people laugh and tell, you know, he just is one of these big personalities. And, and, uh, and as a result, I don't always feel very close to him. You know, there's a sort of distance that he's creating as the person who's on the stage in a way. And, uh, and we've had some moments where that distance wasn't always there. And I I feel like actually I want to reclaim that a bit with him, a bit of the the connection with him. So maybe this is a way into that. That's great. Yeah. Well, Paul, I feel really, um, I'm really glad you said yes to this this kind of cold invitation from from this guy you barely knew. I've had a lot of fun today with you and feel really just very light and open to a lot of the themes we touched on, often, many of which can often feel quite heavy and, and sort of fraught with peril. Yeah, you're right. No, it's been a joy for me too. Hmm. Hmm. Thank you so much, Paul. If folks want to find your your writing or learn more about the work that you're doing, is there a particular place we should point them to? I think the website, um, pauldungeon.com. Okay. Yeah. All right. We'll do that. We'll make sure we include that in the show notes. And yeah, I wonder if there's any last words coming for you to that will make this conversation feel complete today. No, I, I, I find myself just uh, resonating with your understanding and my understanding of how wonderful it is to welcome people to their humanity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's so many other things we could welcome them to that really don't do a hell of a lot. Yeah. But to welcome each other to our humanity? Oh, yeah. That's it. Yeah. yeah. Beautiful. Well, thank you for uh, welcoming me to mine, and I hope you feel welcome to yours today. And, and I trust that anyone listening will feel some of that welcome. That's great. Thanks for tuning in to The Wonder Dome. This podcast was produced by me, Andy Cahill, with support from Kelly Surquois, and audio editing services from John Nolan at Middle Mountain Studios. The theme song was written and performed by Todd Marston. You can find The Wonder Dome wherever pods are casted. If you dig what we're doing here, please share widely, subscribe, and give us some love in the review boards. And if you feel called to support this humble offering to the world, while also making an even greater impact in the lives of others. Consider becoming a monthly supporter. Not only will you help me keep the lights on and keep the show going for as long as I'm able, but 30% of all member contributions go directly in support of causes like the Black Lives Matter movement, the United Nations Refugee Agency, and the National Resources Defense Council. You can find out more at my website, mindfulcreative.coach, where you can also sign up for my newsletter, learn about my transformational coaching work and get plugged into exclusive offers and community happenings. In the meantime, I'm wishing you a life of purpose, power, and presence. We need you now more than ever.